You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by PCS Jobs. APN listeners can post for free by going to arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. That's $50 off the normal price at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten and today I'm joined by Emily Long and Colleen Strawhacker. Thank you so much for being here. It's always great fun. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So on today's episode, we're actually just going to be talking to Colleen about the really awesome work that she does. Um, so Colleen, do you want to start us off by just giving a quick introduction to who you are, where you work, what's going on in your life. <laughs> oh boy, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah. So hi everyone. Um, again, thanks to Chelsea and Emily for having me on. I'm super excited to, to chat more about this stuff. So um, I'm currently a research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, which is based at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I am a weirdo at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, as you can imagine, because I'm doing a lot of um, social science there. And, and there's not a lot of social science that has been done there yet. So it's pretty pretty cool interdisciplinary environment to, to work in, for sure. But I am working on a range of projects that mostly deal with um, making uh, data more easily accessible and available um, from the social sciences and from other sources like indigenous knowledge and things like that. So I work closely with both social scientists and with indigenous communities. And as you can imagine, since I work at a place called the National Snow and Ice Data Center, I am doing it in places covered with snow and ice, so mostly the Arctic. Um, so that's where I'm focusing on right now. But um, I grew up academically in the U.S. Southwest, so still doing a lot of my work there, too. So I'm all over the place, really. <laughs> all right. Well, I know that there are eight countries that are technically Arctic nations. Do you work in a particular country or a particular couple countries or... <laughs> No, I mean, so all I would say my projects span the entire Arctic. So um, a couple of my projects, so one of my more archaeology focused project is based mostly in the North Atlantic. Um, so places like Iceland and Greenland, um, the Orkney Islands and Scotland, um, and the Faroe Islands. So that's kind of where we're focusing on for our more archaeology focused projects, but the, um, the indigenous knowledge project that I work on, which is the Exchange for Local Observations and Knowledge in the Arctic, or LOCA, is pretty much circumpolar, so the entire Arctic. So we have projects going on, um, yeah, I think in probably every country in the Arctic. I'm trying to think if we're missing any. Hmm. Wow. Some gaps here and there in regions, but yeah, we're pretty much circumpolar at this point, which is really cool. And are you studying a particular period in time or culture or working with uh, modern groups or what are you doing with all of these these different areas? Yeah, so so Aloka is um, modern groups that we work with, but you can imagine because we're working with their indigenous knowledge sources, mm -hmm. um, this knowledge will go back millennia. So we'll create atlases of place names, many of which were created centuries, if not millennia ago. Um, for my more archaeology-focused project, which is called Data Arc, um, we're focusing um, pretty much from the time when these North Atlantic islands were settled. So um, for Iceland, that's about 850 AD. For Greenland, around 950 or 1000 AD, um, all the way up to the present. So lots, I have a lot of diverse projects going on, but mostly just trying to connect um, social science data and indigenous knowledge and trying to make that more accessible to people who want to use that. 
That's so cool. And how are you making that information more accessible? Well, there's a lot of different ways, and it really depends on the project, too. So for ALOCA, um, which is our Indigenous Knowledge Project, um, this this is mostly driven by Indigenous communities. So um, really, the Indigenous communities drive what products that they want made and how readily shared a lot of this information is is put out to the general public. So as you can imagine, um, just like archaeological data where you might want to protect um, the locations of archaeological sites um, from looting and things like that, um, indigenous communities often want to protect some of their more sensitive um, information and knowledge as well. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of different um, kind of technical and social solutions to ensure that um, this data and information is shared in an ethical way, and that's all driven by the communities themselves. Um, and so the term that we talk about a lot in kind of my research group or our research group is um, ethically open access data. Um, this term pops up in a couple of different documents. So the International Arctic Science Committee um, has a document on kind of data um, management and accessibility for Arctic research communities. Um, and the, the statement ethically open access is in there. And so I, that's like a term that I really, really like and talking about. And I think it's also really important for archaeology too. And thinking about, you know, oftentimes as archaeologists, we don't want all of our information shared. It should be, the onus should be on having these data open to the public. Um, but there might be some sensitivities there, whether it's with um, burials in the U.S. Southwest or like I mentioned before, locations of archaeological sites, just really being um, super sensitive to that information and, and being really careful about what data are made open. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, examples you're allowed to share about um, how you went about providing that information, whether to the community or sure. a larger audience? Yeah. So, um, so a local, and you can go on the web page for a local, so it's just a loca-arctic.org. Um, and we'll um, provide that information the, in the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And so essentially all of our projects are up there and explained in some way, but you'll see from, um, from a loca, you know, we've worked with a variety of communities to create things like atlases. Um, and these atlases are of place names and you can kind of, and they're really cool. So one of my favorite Aloka projects is the Yupik Environmental Knowledge Project. You can go on and and there's a nice web page that explains and contextualizes the project and the community um, that we worked with to create this. And then it goes into an atlas where you can click on certain place names of these atlases. Um, oh, sorry, these certain place names are essentially dots on the maps. And you can, it'll just pop up whatever information is associated with those place names. Um, so maybe a video or a story about that place name. Oh, which is really so cool. cool. And yeah, it's really awesome. And so that one's pretty much open to the public, um, which is great. The community wanted to share that information. Um, but there have been other cases that, um, you know, it was mostly just the community wanted to, to create um, certain projects that, um, you know, they wanted to keep it internal to, to their, um, their community. And this actually doesn't happen very often. Um, I've been surprised at how willing communities have been willing to share this information to other people, which has been great. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, we just, um, but it's just kind of uh, trying to figure out really innovative ways to make people who might be accessing the information recognize the, the importance of it to the communities at hand. Um, so Another project that Aloka has worked on has been SISONET, which is the Sea Ice Zonal Observation Network. I'm doing really good with acronyms tonight, <laughs> which is good. Um, so SISONET, um, Aloka worked on with partners at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And um, 
our Aloka technical team, we worked on creating um, a database for people. This is mostly focused on northern and western Alaska. Um, people can go in and, and upload and record local observations that they're seeing on while they're out, kind of um, around, walking around, whether they might be hunting or fishing or whaling, et cetera. Um, so they can say, you know, what the status of the sea ice is, um, what subsistence animal they saw. And this, in, this database was essentially created to share observations across communities and villages. Um, and there was some hesitation about how available to make this information. You know, should we make it available to the public? Mm -hmm. why, or why, why shouldn't we? And the decision was made um, to make it available to the public. But when you go on the Sizonet website, and you can download the information if you want to, which is great, download the data. Mm -hmm. But before we download the data and sign in, you see a use agreement. Um, and the use agreement kind of tells you about the database, where the sensitivities may be, why it's important to think about the context of these data. And you need to sign it before you download the data, which I think is really a cool way to make the, the data open to the public, but just um, making people kind of think about that step, you know, and, and how the data are used and, and what could, you know, if they are misused, that what the consequences could possibly be. Yeah, that's I think that's, really that's really great. Um, I actually would like to go back to the one of the Aloka projects that you were talking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. you did the the place names. Yeah, for I believe you said it was the the Yupik. Yep. Mm -hmm. And what else is is contained in in that? You know, are there the the stories about how place names got their places? If there is kind of additional information available, is it provided in both Yupik and English or is it? Yeah, it's this is something that Aloka has been really working really hard at trying to make available, and it's really difficult to do is making it available in both English and the indigenous language which they come from. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so often, you know, and this is really hard to do technically and also just kind of on a basic social level because, as you can imagine, many of these speakers, um, you know, there are not a lot of these speakers left, and so um, it really depends on the actual place name and, and what information is available. And I should also mention that this atlas is a living atlas. There are people still actively adding to this atlas. So oh, um, in addition to kind of the technical part of it, Aloka, um, and the PI of Aloka, the principal investigator of Aloka is Peter Pulsifer. And he's been working really hard at, at doing a lot of outreach and, um, and ensuring that, you know, these um, communities are trained in how to work around this atlas. And so they can upload information themselves, um, you know, as a part of a class project or just for fun and things like that. Um, and so, you know, and it really, so once again, it depends on the, the place name going back to this kind of indigenous language part is that um, sometimes we'll get videos of interviews in the Yupik language or, or for another project, another language. And we've tried to kind of maybe put English subtitles at the bottom. Um, <laughs> so I would say there's not this kind of one size fits all solution to that, but we do make a very, um, earnest effort to ensure that they're in both languages. Um, another example of what we did in Aloka for this is um, the Clyde River Weather. Um, Clyde, it's called ClydeRiverWeather.com, I believe, or .org. I would go on the Aloka website and check it out. But this was a project led by both um, Peter and then Sherry Gearherd, who was a co-PI on the Aloka project as well. And um, up in Clyde River, there's a community up there off of Baffin Bay, and they have um, 
three or four, I believe it's four different weather stations in different parts of their community around there. And as you can imagine, living up in the Arctic, you're, you have lots of different micro environments and the environment can change really rapidly. So when you're out in the ice or you're out um, kind of hunting or something like that, having access to the weather information is really valuable and can really help you stay safe while you're out there. Um, so this website provides um, up-to-date information from all of those weather stations in both English and the native language as well. Um, so it's really cool to kind of also just as a, you know, uh, an English speaker to go back and forth between the two languages and see what it looks like too when they're displaying different kind of meteorological measurements and things like that. Yeah, but that would be interesting. Um, so you also said earlier, uh, and this sounds like it would be one of the highlights is that you can have, you know, like classrooms participating in this, this living document for Aloka. Yeah. And so that, that sounds like you probably have a, a range, an age range of people who are contributing to this, which is really great because I know I've done some work up in the Arctic as, as well. It's actually mm -hmm. how we know each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, for our listeners who don't know that, but I know from conversations I've had with people that you know, they're always looking for ways to, to teach their history and share their history and, and make sure that the, the younger generation carries on the, the same traditions. And this sounds like something where people could go both go to for knowledge and to, to learn, but also something that if you know you had kids per participating in and contributing to, they would take a lot of pride in, in doing that and um, in totally. seeing their history laid out. Like yeah, this. absolutely. And so one of the things that I think is really lovely about Aloka is that, you know, we, we want it driven by communities. You know, we're based at a U.S. university, and, and it's led by kind of academic researchers, but we want the communities to drive the products and to drive the project overall. Um, you know, Aloka belongs to them <laughs> in a lot of ways, and it should. Um, and so we talk to communities all the time and, and what kind of products that they want and, and what they want to do with kind of different technical things that we can do with the, our team of software developers at the National Snow and Ice Data Center. And so um, in 2015, um, Aloka ran a workshop um, because one of the main um, issues that they wanted to talk about was the the point that you just brought up, Chelsea, was that um, you know really connecting youth to elders and the communities was something that they were really keen on doing. So, um, so coming from this Aloka workshop, we essentially got a bunch of people in the room to talk about how to best connect. Um, you know, young people and elders in the community and, and how Aloka could help facilitate that with various technical, you know, things, whether it's atlases or whether it's databases or whether it's fun social media things, who knows. Um, but the really cool thing is that we, um, if I mentioned the video game Never Alone, um, which is essentially um, an Inupiaq, um, based on an Inupiaq girl following around and, and um, kind of navigating her Alaskan environment. And it, and it talks a lot about the embedded indigenous knowledge that, um, you know, she has and, and how she's kind of observing the environment. And we had a bunch of people kind of around the table or around this TV playing this game together. And it was just really cool to watch. Um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, Aloka does a lot of that in thinking about how technology can help to facilitate, you know, these co conversations and relationships, um, you know, between various types of people. That's amazing. And so I'm guessing then it's 
helping with um, some groups with uh, cultural, um, like reclaiming culture and language and that type of thing as well as it being enfolded into that, not just promoting the culture, but helping, I guess, bring it, bring the language back in a way. Maybe. I mean, so it, this is kind of where it's tricky to talk about Aloka, right? And so mm-hmm. I talked to, obviously, as a part of my job uh, as Aloka, is I talk to Indigenous people a lot. And I talk a lot about this concept of information and data sovereignty, um, which if you think about something like research sovereignty, um, you're talking about you know people, researchers going up to the Arctic and really having a conversation with the Indigenous communities whose land that they're working on. And not only getting their permission to do that, but really trying to find out what these indigenous communities want to learn about their environment through a scientific viewpoint. Um, And so I talk a lot about information sovereignty in which, um, you know, these this information and these data really need to be driven by the communities themselves and and having a conversation with them on, on what that best means and what that what the best fit is for them. And, you know, I think it's also important to understand that these indigenous communities are equals as well. Mm -hmm. They're equal partners. Um, And so I, this term of using kind of the the term help makes me a little uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. um, they often don't need help kind of, it's tricky, right? Because we have this long history of colonialism in which a lot of these systems have been grossly disrupted, but these communities Mm -hmm. are actually still incredibly active culturally in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And Aloka is just finding new ways to display and visualize their information in new and innovative ways. um, If that makes sense, how I'm trying to approach that. No, that's wonderful. And it's great that the program's coming at it in a much more of a partnership viewpoint. Because, yeah, I've definitely read that that's a major issue pretty much with any anthropological or archaeological study. With Yeah, and not just anthropology or archaeology, but, like, all science, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it's it's not just, I mean, obviously anthropology has a long history of that, but, you know, there are still a lot of scientists who do not do that at all. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think archaeologists and anthropologists now realize that they won't ever be able to get their job done if they don't work in partnership with communities, but... A lot of physical scientists can often get get around that in some ways. Um, so yeah, I just I think that's a, a major problem that all scientists are if they haven't had to confront already, they will have to confront very soon because of this you know this idea of research sovereignty being exerted by these communities in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, and you do have going back more to the social science versus the kind of traditional hard sciences or physical sciences of that the hard sciences typically being seen as more apolitical or more objective. And I don't believe that that's actually true, but it does allow them to get around a lot of the cultural appreciation and understanding and um, communication and collaboration, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Like, I definitely agree with your statement that they're definitely not apolitical at all. But, you know, as an anthropologist to do your job, you actually need to talk to people, right? <laughs> and What a crazy concept. Yeah, right? <laughs> Golly. But, you know, if you're, um, a, for example, a permafrost scientist, often you're just kind of out in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, taking cores or temperatures and things like that. And you may or may not, you might just be at a research station and not interact with the community. But it's important to realize that you're coring on someone's subsistence hunting lands, perhaps, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, and often, and I think more and more communities are exerting power and saying, you know, even though you don't need to talk to us for your research, you need to gain permission from us. And you know what? There have been some really valuable partnerships between people trained academically as a scientist and these indigenous people who know a lot more about their environment that, than we ever will often. They just approach it from a completely different standpoint. So I hope scientists more and more become kind of more aware that having an indigenous partner will kind of make your understanding of the environment that you're working in a lot stronger. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so I think that that is actually bringing us right about to the end of our first section. I think that's a, a good place to stop at. So we're going to take a quick break. And when cool. we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other projects you're working on. Sounds good. Kim Bidolf explores the books set in our prehistoric past on Prehistories, an innovative and creative show. Kim investigates the archaeology and anthropology behind your favorite stories by bringing on guests that are experts in the field and that can speak to the actual story behind the story. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. Now let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today, so far, we have been talking with Colleen Strawhawker about her work with the Snow and Ice Data Center. <laughs> National Snow and Ice Data Center, or NSIDC for short. Yes. <laughs> um, and including the, the Aloka project. But to backtrack a little bit, do you want to tell us a little bit about why it's important to be doing research in the Arctic? Yeah. I mean, what sure, could be yeah. going on there? I know what possibly could be happening just never makes the news or anything ever, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I'm actually the Arctic is just so fascinating for me. So kind of what I alluded to when I was introducing myself is that I'm actually relatively new to the Arctic. <laughs> so I've probably been working in the Arctic for maybe four or five years now. And I, and I worked mostly in the southwestern desert of the United States, so places like Arizona and New Mexico. So I'm not really sure how different you can get <laughs> when I started working at the National Snow and Ice Data Center. Um, but I just find the Arctic absolutely fascinating to work in. And, you know, obviously it makes the news all the time. And, and my organization that I work for is partially responsible for that because every time you hear about the new Arctic sea ice minimum being at a record low, or the Arctic sea ice maximum being at a record low, um, that those numbers are released by my organization. And um, we're, we're doing a lot of that work, and, and not me per se, but other people in my department are doing a lot of that remote sensing work to um, understand Arctic sea ice. Um, and as you can, what I was also alluding to is that there seems to be a record low more and more often. Um, this year was a particularly scary year in the Arctic and a particularly weird year in the Arctic in that it was extremely warm and unpredictable. And mm. so a lot of the research coming out now is that not surprisingly, the Arctic is at the front lines of climate change. Um, it's warming exponentially faster than other parts of the world. Um, the effects are being felt much greater in the Arctic. And this ties into my work with the LOCA in that we have a lot of people and people actually live in the Arctic, just a reminder. <laughs> Some people just, it's weird because you hear about Arctic sea ice all the time. And I think a lot of people forget that people actually live and subsist in the Arctic too. Um, 
And so you have people, mostly indigenous people, on the front lines of climate change there. Um, and these, this climate change can have um, great effects on their ability to survive on this landscape. Um, so to me, the Arctic is a fascinating place to study just because a fascinatingly kind of interesting and scary and sad and hopefully hopeful place to work to um, and thinking about kind of how people can adapt to, um, you know, the climate change going on and thinking about the Arctic and, and, you know, what, and I always like to say, and I know someone else has coined this, I know I didn't come up with it, so I can't quote myself, but you know, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. <laughs> you know, there are <laughs> lots of uh, things going on in the Arctic that are going to have effects for people, for example, on the U S East coast where millions and millions of people live, um, and things like that. And so just thinking about the Arctic being on the front lines of climate change, um, that, that I think makes it a really important um, and essential place to study from a number of different viewpoints, whether you know, you're a physical scientist um, studying permafrost, which I mentioned before, or someone working with remote sensing data to, to really understand how sea ice is changing, or an archeologist um, doing um, salvage archeology span as sites fall into the sea with increasing storminess, or someone like me just making sure that, that the data are preserved that you know other people 100 years from now can, can look at them. So, yeah, I guess I could talk about why the Arctic is important forever, but I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's wonderful. Seriously, it, it's great that so much work is being done and I'm hoping it more and more will get out to the general public so that we can yeah, shake totally. you know, the non-believers. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned that some of the work you were doing is making sure that this data is preserved and and made available and I think that was through the maybe data arc project you were talking about earlier yeah and so like most of my projects at NSIDC so I work on probably three or four separate projects hard to keep track because they're always kind of fading in and out every once in a while but I work on three or four different projects right now Aloka being one of them and data arc being a number that are really focused on on make a data, making data more available in different ways and so data arc is um, a project that I lead um, funded through the National Science Foundation. Thank you, NSF. <laughs> um, and we're working closely with um, a number of different res um, researchers in the North Atlantic. So I mentioned before, Iceland and Greenland and the Orkney Islands are really our focus right now. But I'm envisioning this pro like project 10 years from now being like a really cool circumpolar project if you know money's still around to support this kind of work, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but essentially what we're doing in Data Arc is um, we really want to ease the ability to do synthesis research. Um, and so this is really coming out of a number of different articles that have come out in recent years on, on how to address questions um, of these grand challenges in archaeology. And so um, Keith Kintig et al. published this really wonderful kind of summary paper on talking about what these big questions in archaeology are and how they can be answered. And the one that particularly intrigues me as someone working in the Arctic and also as an environmental archaeologist is this, um, how people really dealt with climate change in the past and um, really focusing on like what conditions behaviorally or environmentally may have increased or decreased vulnerability to the ability to adapt to sudden shocks to the system. Um, and as you can imagine, being able to ask this question or answer this question or even 
talk about this question takes a huge amount of data from a variety of different sources. Um, so obviously you need archeology, span you need paleoclimate data, you need some kind of paleoecological data sources. Um, historic documents, if you have them available, are wonderful. Um, and data arc, we work. I work with um, my colleague Emily Lethbridge, who's done wonderful work um, on Icelandic sagas. Um, and so, really, data arc is a cyber infrastructure project designed to pull together a variety of different data sources to really enable this type of research. Um, so, I've done some of this synthesis research before, and you know, they've created these wonderful PNAS articles that make a big splash, and they're really cool. But they've taken like eight international meetings to create one paper, oh, <laughs> you know, wow. which is just yeah, it's a crazy. I mean, they were incredibly interesting and really fun meetings to be a part of, but you know, it's a ton of work to put together this one, you know, project. And it was like this, it's just kind of mind boggling to the kind of stamina we had to be able to put it together, <laughs> right? And so, um, and there just was no cyber infrastructure or data systems really available to ease that type of research. So we were essentially kind of collating data from scratch and trying to figure out how to link them together. Um, so data art grew out of this problem to figure out some kind of data, whatever system you want to call it, whether it's linking or visualization, because it can do a number of different things, or it will be able to do a number of different things at the end of the project, um, to really enable this type of research in, in archaeology. That's so that sounds like you've um, bitten off quite a bit. Yeah, that's what <laughs> everyone says when I hear about this project. <laughs> um, you know, but hats off to you for doing it, because it sounds <laughs> yeah. like it's super important, um, but also you know, complex. Uh, it's incredibly complex, but the thing that's wonderful is that I have this really wonderful interdisciplinary team of people working really hard on it. Um, so, you know, I have people who are like a software developer who's my technical lead is just amazing. I don't know how he gets it done. And then all of the archeologists who are just so open to learning about various data issues from the other side and things like that. So I'm not alone in this at all. I'm just trying to help coordinate people <laughs> to make sure the work comes together. Yeah, and I mean, archeology span as a whole has become more concerned with data management and digitization. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we were both at the SAAs and there were, uh, you know, a large number of panels on precisely Tons. that. Which is yeah, I'm so happy to see that. For, for sure. Yeah, it's been really great also to think critically about those issues too. So, you know, having a data management system, so for example, like the Digital Archaeological Record or TDAR or Open Context, doing really wonderful work and making these data available. But then, you know, having people just really talk about kind of what it means to enable data reuse or something like that. And, and what do we see? One of the panels that I was involved in at the SAAs was talking about kind of how do we talk about data reuse and, and how do we value and measure that? Because that makes me really nervous. <laughs> like mm. I don't think we've had thought nearly enough about that yet. Um, so it's been really good not only to kind of see the technical architecture Come, become really mature in archaeology to um, enable really good data management, but also kind of this, uh, lots of theoretical contributions and in, in thinking about that too. Mm -hmm. And when you say data reuse, do you mean at all levels from academic to um, public or just, um, just general use of uh, resources? 
Yeah. So this idea of data reuse is kind of like, you know, I think we've focused over the last couple of years and, okay, you need to manage your data, <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> forcing scientists to document their data and manage their data. And, and I think people are mostly on board. There's always kind of the final resistors who will never do it because they just don't want to. And that's disappointing, but there's only so much you can do and you need to focus on the people who are going to do it mm -hmm. <laughs> well sometimes. Right. Um, but now it's, I think we're getting to the point where we're saying, and this is kind of what data arc is designed to do too, right? Is that, well, data management is a really good idea. We all should be doing it. We all should be doing it well. We all should be, if we're not trained in it ourselves, be consulting with people who are experts in it. Um, but essentially if you're doing data management, which takes a ton of time and money, let's be really mm -hmm. honest about it to do it right. You're essentially trying to enable someone to use your data in the future, right? Which is data reuse. Um, and that could be used in a number of different ways, right? And so DataArc is a project that's mostly designed to um, allow data reuse by scientists. But for example, Aloka is designed to, um, you know, indigenous knowledge of reuse. And maybe I need to use a better term than reuse. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, Aloka is designed to share indigenous knowledge for other people to refer to it or to use it as a source of information to understand their world. Um, if I download someone's data set from the U.S. Southwest um, because I want to know about the animal bones found at a site that I've never worked on before, but I, I want to look at that data set and analyze it a different way and compare it to a site that I'm working on, that's a form of data reuse, right? So it mm -hmm. could be a wide range of opportunities to reuse these data. I see. Yeah, so on, on the subject of, of data reuse, Obviously, data that is being recorded today can be curated in such a way that we're adhering to best practices for, for data management and we're yeah. consulting experts and all of that is, is wonderful and good. As someone who has worked in museum collections before. <laughs> yeah. In the National Park Service archives for me. Oh, right? yeah. In, in various states. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> some of which were due to shoddy record keeping a hundred years ago, some of which was the basement flooded and they had to, you know, get everything out of the basement as fast as possible in the sixties when they were still <laughs> storing things in the basement. There was and... a catastrophic fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and or things... you have the data set, but you don't have the coding sheet. So the data mean nothing to you. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you have all this kind of incomplete data, for lack of, of a better word, where yeah, the analysis yeah. of it is really difficult because you lack the, the context. Mm -hmm. Are the projects that you're working on doing anything about trying to, I guess, recover that information, for lack of a better word? or Legacy data. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely, because as you can imagine, having these long-term data sets are incredibly valuable to not only understanding, you know, the thing that we always know as archaeologists, and I, I don't know actually who the who your audience of people listening to this audience, whether it's more general public or, or archaeologists, but Sounds we like archaeologists know that, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> so <laughs> we as archaeologists know that when you excavate a site, you immediately destroy the data, right? Um, and so often these incomplete data sets are the only information that you know about a site. And so I'm thinking about 
really prominent sites in the U.S. Southwest. So something like Chaco Canyon, mm-hmm. um, which was excavated over 100 years ago, and people are doing wonderful kind of data rescue projects of them, of these sites in the Chaco Canyon kind of time period and, and region. And so um, actually... Um, a PhD student here. She just graduated from the University of Colorado. Erin Baxter did this wonderful kind of legacy. I love Baxter. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> She's awesome. So Erin just did this wonderful kind of. I, I talked to her a lot about her research. At she worked at Aztec, obviously, which mm-hmm. is um, um, not Chaco Canyon proper, but uh, related to and. Um, you know, when I actually, you know, I talked to her about her research and thought she was like doing amazing things. And then I went to her dissertation defense and I was like, oh my God, this is like a legacy data rescue project. This is so cool. <laughs> I don't know why that never clicked before. Um, but, you know, when you when you think about these important sites, you obviously need to, to think about these legacy data sets. And this is not only... Um, this is not just for archaeology either. When you're talking about climate change in the Arctic, you know, our sea ice, formal sea ice records really only go back 30 years, um, maybe 40, um, depending on the sea ice record. And so um, one of my, a couple of my colleagues at NSIDC just won this data rescue um, kind of prize when they took um, these like formally lost remote sensing data sets from the 1960s and pulled them together. And so now we can have the sea ice record going back to the 1960s, which is really cool. Um, and, you know, this is also is not just a problem for, you know, the punch cards <laughs> and collections that have been put in the box for a hundred years too. I mean, we're essentially doing data rescue of spreadsheets that were created in the mid 1980s. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many different forms that this can take. I could just go on and on. And so one really cool example that Aloka is working on too, is that I mentioned briefly Sherry Gearherd, um, who is a copia in Aloka and for her dissertation, um, which she worked on, I won't say the date to embarrass her, <laughs> but um, as a part of her um, dissertation, cre- she created a CD-ROM um, for kind of um, the indigenous community that she worked with to, to play with. And it's like more of like this at, like public outreach, but a really excellent part of her research, um, a really cool product. But, you know, when we buy a new laptop now, I don't even know where I could access a CD-ROM drive at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is problematic. But this is like such, yeah, And but the CD was such a valuable research output of her work um, that Aloka has been trying to find ways to kind of rescue the CD and put it, and essentially forward migrate it <laughs> mm-hmm. into another format to make it available again. Um, and so there are so many different types of data rescue of legacy data, whether you're talking about museum collections or National Park Service <laughs> records or, um, you know, sites that were excavated 100 years ago and probably not with the methods, you know, definitely not with the methods that we use today, but this data are still available and can be reanalyzed in different ways. Um, I think this is such an important topic, obviously. I'm keep, I feel like I go on and on. Not <laughs> at all. all. It's the true. Time. We've yeah. definitely had our soapboxes on this similar totally, topic and right? <laughs> be like, we, where, what happened to data management? What happened to these archives? Yeah. What happened? Why not just use these artifacts for a study? Why right. do we have to go dig up more? That kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And so this is like the really interesting um, kind of conundrum, right? Is that excavation is expensive and it's oh a lot gosh. of work, but there are wonderful collections out there that can be reanalyzed. And, um, you know, I do think there is this, um, I don't know this, there's this resistance in archeology, span I think to really move that direction, because I do think there are some people who really 
have this stereotype that you're not a real archaeologist unless you get your hands dirty <laughs> in that way, um, which I think is, you know, a really awful um, kind of way to go because, you know, I think excavating is one thing and learning how the data are collected, but, you know, being able to analyze collections and understand the context from something like field notes and photographs is a completely different skill that's super valuable in so many mm -hmm. different ways. And I think we need to kind of equally appreciate that in addition to going out and excavating your own site for your dissertation and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think some of that also, uh, from a very practical perspective, working with some of those older collections is really, really hard and hard in a very totally. different way than, mm -hmm. yeah. than digging. I mean, complete nightmare. Right. You go out and you dig and, and like, yes, that is, you know, like hard physical work, but it's, it's a very different kind of hard to try and mm -hmm. piece together, you know, an, an archive that nobody's looked at in 40 years and half the yeah. notes are missing. And I completely um, ag agree. And, but I do, and like, I also do think, you know, having it's so worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also do think having the excavation experience is incredibly valuable. And so um, when I started the Data Arc project, you know, obviously I hadn't done a ton of not any field work really in the North Atlantic. All of my field work was in either the U.S. Southwest or down in South America. And um, and I just asked someone to go help on their excavation for a few weeks. And so um, Megan Hicks, who is a graduate student um, about to finish her Ph.D., um, at, at the city university of New York, let me come out and just help her <laughs> for a while. And so essentially, you know, I wasn't digging up my own site, but I got my hands dirty by just helping somebody else collect artifacts for their dissertation. And now I'm doing legacy data stuff, you know? Um, so I think that's a good compromise in a lot of ways too. Mm -hmm. Having a happy medium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably a, a good stopping point for our second section. Um, but when we come back, we will, <laughs> talk some more about the importance of legacy data. <laughs> yeah, totally. <Excellent. laughs> Sounds good. Hosted by archaeologist Emily Long, Trial Tales is an archaeology podcast with stories told by archaeologists about the crazy world of archaeology. Emily weaves a tale of wonder and excitement with her intriguing questions and imaginative editing skills. Check out Trial Tales today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash trial tales. Now let's get back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Uh, today we were joined by Colleen Strawhacker and we've had some really interesting conversations in the last 40 minutes about some of her work up in the Arctic. For this last segment, we're actually going to shift a little bit um, geographically to some of the work that you're doing in the American Southwest or have, have been doing um, about <laughs> yes. food shortages. Yeah, food security really. And that's in studies of ancient uh, examples of that, right? Yeah. So um, I worked on a project. This was um, led by Peggy Nelson at Arizona State and funded by the Coupled Natural Human Systems Program at the National Science Foundation. Um, but so the, the overall project was called the Long-Term Transformations and Vulnerability Project. Oh, wow. <laughs> and sounds, yes, very intense and very official. But we had a bunch of um, once again, a, a big interdisciplinary project of ecologists and computer modelers um, and obviously archaeologists to really understand kind of this idea of resilience and vulnerability in the U.S. Southwest. And my part in that, I, I started as a wee little graduate student <laughs> on this project <laughs> a long time ago. And 
and eventually kind of became the lead kind of grad student data wrangler, wrangler, which is how I became involved in all of my other crazy data products projects. But the really cool research that kind of my part of this project has been doing has been um, we are looking at climate, paleoclimate data to understand um, different uh, situations that may, have, may or may not have um, set up vulnerability or resilience to climate shocks in the past. Um, and so we really focus on this idea of food security. And so the reason I love working in the Arctic um, archeologically is that it's a marginal environment in a lot of ways. If you kind of get two degrees cooler, you might not be able to grow certain crops. Um, you know, you're kind of on that edge of being able to, um, you know, do certain things to produce food in the Arctic. And I think the same is true in the U.S. Southwest, too, mm -hmm. in which um, it's marginal in a different way in that if you don't receive enough rainfall in a year, um, you know, you, you're not going to have a good year to be able to create um, to produce enough food, mostly corn in this case, um, to support your, your village or maybe perhaps a wider social network. Um, so we are looking at how, um, how people, what are the kind of social conditions at a certain period of time? Um, we look at transformations in the archeological record and then we combine that with our paleoclimate data and try to look for patterns. Um, so for example, um, the Membrays region in southern New Mexico, um, you know, you have a lot of transformations when you, you're moving from people living in pit houses to the classic period Membrays, which are really famous for their black and white pottery. They're living in above ground pueblos at that point. Um, lots of conformity in their system. So we look at things like that. Like, so we can see very much that their pottery is all the same at that period of time. And then maybe 130 years later, so and this is what's wonderful about working in the Southwest is like often we can say plus or minus five years, <laughs> a thousand years ago, which is just incredible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, at um, uh, 130 years later, all of a sudden people are um, really scattering across the landscape, living in smaller places. Um, their pottery becomes incredibly diverse as composed to, you know, the classic period where they only really had one type of pottery. Um, we're trying to put kind of all of these different situations together to see if climate was related to that um, or if it was a, a social thing going on. And this is kind of a really complex um, project going mm -hmm. on, it's hard to explain. So my part in this project is, is trying to look at the paleoclimate data. Um, and what we look for is anti-correlations in some way. <laughs> so um, there's been a lot of ethnography that talks about anti-correlation. So theoretically, if you're, if you want to mediate or lessen, vulner, lessen vulnerability to food insecurity, so if you have a food shortfall, um, you want to be connected with somebody that's going to have a good year when you have a bad year. Um, so in the U.S. Southwest, when you're having a good year, you might want to set up a social network when you have a bad year, this other place in the landscape is having a good year. So we're kind of creating these pixelated maps <laughs> and mm -hmm. Um, trying to figure out, you know, if we see patterns in both social networks that we see in the past and whether the paleoclimate data is, we're seeing um, anti-correlations there as well. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> it does, but just yeah. for the, the sake of our listeners, just if you can go yeah. into a little bit, like what exactly is an anti-correlation and um, what goes yeah. into paleoclimatology? Like what, what evidence yeah. do you need beyond so, ethnography so maybe, and whatnot? 
yeah. So this project is really big and complex. Maybe it's a little easier to step back and, and think about the actual data that we're working with. Um, so we are actually, when we were doing this project, we obviously are, are building it across um, you know, decades worth of, of archaeological research that's been done in the U.S. Southwest, um, mainly by researchers at Arizona State, um, but by other people as well. Um, and what we wanted to do is say, okay, we started with this modern um, precipitation data. So if you've ever heard of the PRISM data set before, mm -hmm. um, have you? <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay, so the PRISM data set's awesome. It's essentially this rasterized version across the entire United States of monthly precipitation data from like 1910 to present. And so you essentially can click an 800 by 800 meter square anywhere in the US um, and get uh, an idea of what the precipitation was in that pixel in October of 1941, um, which is really cool. It's a really great data set. So what we did was um, with the help of the work done by Kyle Basinski, who is, um, you know, he's an archeologist doing a lot of climate modeling. And he's um, currently he, at Crow Canyon. He is also currently a companion, yes. <laughs> really great <laughs> Lots of us have a, yeah, totally. Um, so Kyle's just doing this awesome work, um, working with um, the tree ring record in the US Southwest, and essentially has um, retrodicted these PRISM data going back 2,000 years. So essentially this data set is awesome. So now with the help of um, our group and then what Kyle has done, we essentially have this map in the US Southwest of monthly data, rasterized pixels, of um, precipitation for the last 2,000 years. So wow. that's the paleoclimate. Yeah, it's incredible, right? So this is the paleoclimate data that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking about looking on this map of pixels across the US Southwest, essentially we wanna see across the landscape if we can see patterns and, and when people are having good years and bad years. Um, so if your precipitation is really low, so if I'm thinking about a big site like Mesa Verde, mm -hmm. um, essentially if you're a Mesa Verde and there's consistently a place in the landscape, um, maybe you know, 40 kilometers away from you, that's always having a good year when Mesa Verde is having a bad year. Theoretically, if they're trying to lessen their vulnerability to climate change, Mesa Verde would want to set up a social network with those people having a good year when they're having a bad year, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where this anti-correlation idea comes from. Okay. Um, we don't know if people did this. <laughs> um, <laughs> You it know, makes sense, like, intentionally, but it totally makes sense. Right. And so um, so it, we're essentially trying to figure out, you know, if we're seeing anti-correlations in um, the paleoclimate record, do we see social networks in the past that link up to that? And we can see social networks in a variety of ways archaeologically, whether it's through exchange of materials, um, exchange of people, for instance, um, shared um, building strategies. We can see if there's some kind of shared connection in some way. So we're really trying to figure out and, and kind of put together, um, you know, this anti-correlation in the landscape and then trying to figure out um, whether food security was, um, you know, whether your vulnerability to food insecurity, for instance, was ameliorated by um, setting up social networks in these anti-correlated places. Um, but as you can imagine, this data set, this paleoclimate data set is so incredibly valuable that we can analyze it in a number of different ways, right? And so, um, for instance, we've also looked at um, whether places on the landscape are experiencing severe food storage capability in a given year. Um, so in the US Southwest, you can store corn for three to four years. Um, so we have, we've created maps that tell you what percentage of time over a hundred year time period that your storage would have failed 
in a given time slice. Um, so that gives you an idea of how stressed these villages may have been and what strategies that they can rely on, um, whether it's their social networks in an anti-correlated places or storage. We've also created maps to understand the availability of wild resources um, based on these precipitation data. Um, so we're essentially trying to evaluate um, risk in the U.S. Southwest and, and what strategies people would have been able to rely on it in different time periods um, prehistorically. And have you been able to see some uh, relatively direct correlations between different groups and different areas, that type of thing? Yeah. So we're still analyzing the data. So essentially what we do is we create these maps and then we sit down with our case study experts. And so um, we're publishing um, a chapter right now on the Salinas region in central New Mexico. Um, and so Kate Spielman, who led a bunch of the archaeology in this region, um, stared at these maps with me and we started to link up um, different research that's been done on things like ceramic exchange and things like that and and where beneficial networks would have been Um based on any correlations. So for example, in Salinas, um, there's a mountain range to the south that seems to be quite a bit um, anti-correlated with the main pueblos in the central Salinas region. And there's actually evidence for trade going on between these regions at the time periods when they were anti-correlated, which is really interesting in a lot of ways. Um, again, we don't know if it's intentional or not, um, but you can approach these this research in a number of different ways to understand kind of how people would have been dealing with this kind of risky climate situation. And you're talking about like the major drought cycles we're seeing prehistorically that some lasted, what, like 20 years or so? Yeah. I mean, it could be drought or it could be also just understanding that there are, you know, there have been droughts, like there were droughts that were absolutely devastating mm -hmm. to different communities in the U.S. Southwest. And we absolutely have evidence for it. So the one that people always talk about is Mesa Verde, mm -hmm. um, which is the abandonment of it is correlated with a pretty severe drought. But we also know that, you know, things were other social things were going on in Mesa Verde that might have exacerbated mm -hmm. um, that the the lack of ability to really um adapt to that drought or and then also just thinking being really careful about our language is that you know movement is a type of adaptation <laughs> so even though we talk about mesa verde being an abandonment you know in the the mid 1270s maybe correlated with a drought um they moved to another place that they had um you know scott ortman's research has shown that they had ties mm -hmm. there um in the northern rio grande so that's essentially a climate adaptation or an adaptation to a climate shock um mm -hmm. that people were making in the mesa verde region so just um kind of reframing the issue might um help us talk about this as well and have you been able to see correlations to today so if phoenix per se is completely running totally. out of water would they <laughs> should they do a similar adaptive move and literally yeah. pick up and go somewhere yeah else? god phoenix is a really interesting case right? so um so i think it's mostly just also i i think so much of the conversation right now is temperatures are rising um globally, sea ice is melting, sea levels are rising, and it's really focused on kind of the environmental aspects of climate change. Um, but the work that this research is doing and that a lot of other archaeologists working on, on climate change are doing, so there's a lot of people in the North Atlantic um, talking about this issue of climate change and risk and food security as well, is that mm -hmm. really focusing on um, the social side <laughs> of these things too. And so, you know, people 
adapted successfully to climate change in the past all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't all doom and gloom. It wasn't all collapse. It wasn't all abandonment. Um, so really focusing on these case studies, and we have a lot of them in the U.S. Southwest. So the Salinas case study is one of them. And that, um, you know, there were climate shocks in, in various um, parts of the U.S. Southwest that people adapted to um, and, different, and created different ingenious strategies to deal with that. Um, and so really thinking about you know, obviously the environmental data is incredibly important for us to understand what's going on in the natural, the natural environment, but also just understanding that different social conditions are going to increase your vulnerability or decrease your ability to react to those changing environmental conditions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so just being really aware that, you know, if you're restricting people's ability to make decisions in different ways, that's going to likely increase your vulnerability um, to being able to adapt to something like climate change or drought or a flood or a volcanic eruption. You know, this really can happen with any catastrophic event. And so definitely it's applicable to applicable and relevant to our current situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, just being you know, and also I think archaeology is a really good way to communicate science too. Everyone loves talking about archaeology. <laughs> that is true. We're like really good examples, but just, you know, just saying that, you know, and this is also one of the things that we get from climate deniers a lot too, is that, well, climate has always changed and it's just changing again now. Um, and that's true. <laughs> and, but it's really different now. Um, you know, the, there was a recent scientific study that came out that shows that you know, the anthropogenic inputs in climate change today are, are forcing climate to change faster 100, at 170 times the rate than we've seen before, wow. um, which is insane, mm -hmm. right? And so the, our archaeological case studies are really valuable to understand kind of the social conditions in which people may or may not be more vulnerable to something like a climate shock. Um, but these climate shocks happened on a completely different time scale in the past. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think it's just being really aware that, um, you know, these archaeological cases, I think, are incredibly important to understanding our modern conditions. But what we're dealing with right now is a really different situation because of, you know, it, this being anthropogenically driven in a really different way. Mm -hmm. And should there yeah. be even, even more catastrophic shock? I don't think people yeah. know what to do. We're yeah. not yeah. very adaptable anymore. <laughs> Going to the uh, the efforts to put together these, you know, really valuable sources of data are so important because then you can, you know, objectively show that the scale is so much different, uh, so so different now than it is in the, the past. Um, yeah, totally. Um and we I need to throw binders of the reports at senators' heads and just be like, here, yeah. and just chuck it at them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think also just like being really, um, like trying to find better ways to explain this stuff too. And so I feel like I haven't done the greatest job at explaining this project because it is, that the science that we do is incredibly complex. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not, I feel like I can, I do the science and I can barely explain it, you know? It's, <laughs> and I think it's just really trying to, to find better ways of, 
of explaining it to people. I mean, I, um, I think it's really, really hard because you want to show how much work is being done. I mean, I'm telling you this, this prism data and the retrojections and us trying to create these anti-correlation maps is really the product of like almost a decade's worth of work and wow. discussions. Um, and it's like been so much fun for me to do, but it's, it's really hard for even me to wrap my head around it. Um, so I, I get really frustrated when people like, you know, deny climate science and things like that. But I'm also like, you know, I don't think we're doing the greatest job <laughs> as a scientific community to make it accessible either to people. There's a really interesting guy. His name is, it's Pear Espen Stokes, but he's written a book that's called what we think about when we try not to think about yeah. climate change or global warming. I think he's, I think it's climate change that he uses and it's the psychology of yeah. climate change deniers and, and talks about effective ways to, to communicate about climate change, you know, but also puts a, a big onus on kind of the media and, and the doom and gloom that is so often portrayed because totally. it makes people feel like it doesn't matter what they do. It's irreversible. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, it's certainly like, irreversible like, if you don't change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you have these like super catastrophic movies, like the day after tomorrow where you have like tsunamis <laughs> and, and things like that happening. But I think the important part is to say, you know, like once again, these archaeological case studies show that people did successfully adapt to climate change in the past all the time. Um, and it's just about being really cognizant. And, you know, they were also aware of their environment and they understood um, kind of, you know, the the changes that were happening and, and were really smart often in, in creating strategies if they were going to um, experience a climate shock, which, you know, everyone always does at some point to set up strategies to make sure that they could deal with it in some way. Yeah. And in a, a lot of ways our more modern world makes it, I don't, I don't know about more difficult to be aware of, of the climate, but when you move from one air conditioned or heated space into another, you are not forced to confront changing the changing environment as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And so also when you just like you go to the grocery store and buy your food <laughs> all the time and and you don't appreciate I mean, I it takes me I mean, even as someone who studies farming in the past, like I often don't when I even just try to grow like a zucchini plant in my backyard, it's like the hardest thing ever. <laughs> right. And so it's like, if that's just, all like, you had to eat. Yeah. And so like just really appreciating how hard a farmer's job is to create our food. Um, And also just, um, you know, like thinking about the different strategies that people would have used to to deal with climate shocks or or, or, like I said, really any catastrophic event in the past. Um, You know, movement was a big one. Um, And I think now that, you know, we're living in cities and we're heavily urbanized, um, our ability to move is restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a deep tie to our infrastructure. We invested a lot of money <laughs> into it. Um, and so that's really where a bunch of the cost is going to come from, right? Is that this, the infrastructure is not movable. Um, so how do you deal with climate change with, with that, which is a, a big issue in, in modern systems? For sure. Well, we are approaching 
be the end of our third segment, unfortunately. Um, Colleen, it's been so amazing to have you on. I don't know if you have any final thoughts that you just really wanted to get in there. Uh, no, but just I, I think I have talked so much <laughs> about so many things. Like, thanks so much for having me on. This was super fun. And I, I like I said, if anybody has any questions or wants to tweet, you know, good or bad things at me, feel free to <laughs> at, Ar- at Archeo Hacker. But I'll, I'll provide um, Chelsea and Emily with all of the, the links and, and contact information, too, if people want to follow up. Wonderful. Perfect. Yeah, and just thank you so much for coming on tonight. It's been amazing. I've learned a lot. Me, too. It's been an Good. absolute pleasure having you, Colleen. Thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comment section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.